the iHeartMedia Complex on WTKS-FM, HD1, Cocoa Beach, Orlando. Available anywhere you go on the iHeartRadio app. Download it now. Groundbreaking. Critically acclaimed. And now, The Phillips File. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Yeah, it is. Hello there. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a Wednesday edition of the Phillips File. This one for May 2nd of the year 2018. And on Wednesdays, uh, we dispel with the usual openings because we want to get to the heart of the matter. As you know, the Phillips File spends the first 30 minutes at the beginning of every Wednesday, every Wednesday program, so that we can focus our attention on the Central Florida opioid and heroin crisis. Today is interview, Mark's interview number nine. Our guest is Dr. Joseph Thundiel. Now, let me read this about uh, Dr. Thundiel before we get to some questions. Uh, Dr. Thundiel obtained his undergraduate and medical degree at Northwestern University in Chicago, completed his emergency medicine training at Orlando Regional Medical Center. He followed with a master's in public health at the University of California, uh, fellowship training in medical toxicology and occupational environmental medicine at the University of California. Uh, currently triple board certified in emergency medicine, med- medical toxicology, occupational environmental medicine. He's a fellow of both the American College of Medical Toxicology, the American College of Emergency Physicians. I'm not finished yet. He's been active locally and nationally in the fields of medical toxicology and emergency medicine. And Dr. Thundiel serves as volunteer faculty for the Florida Poison and Information Center. He's professor of medicine at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine. He serves on the Orange County Heroin Task Force. I'm not through. Areas of expertise involve work as an emergency physician, a medical toxicologist, serves on the Orange County Heroin Task Force. He treats patients in the emergency departments who suffer from complications of drug use. So, Dr. uh, Thundial, my first question, what do you do in your spare time? (laughs) I mean, come, on, come on this radio program, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, my goodness gracious. Let's get to the heart of the matter. I read uh, today, I don't know if these uh, uh, these statistics or th- this data is correct, but it says 12% of the fatal opioid overdoses in the United, State, uh, United States take place in, in Florida. In Orange County alone, opioid deaths increased by more than 70% over a three-year period. Based on your experience treating emergency overdose cases, would you say that's essentially... On target? That sounds about right. And you know, if you want to take it back even further, Please. You, you said, uh, what was the percent you gave? 70%. 70%. I mean, we've increased like 500% compared to the 20 years ago when I first came to the Orlando, Central Florida area. I mean, when I think back, when I started my emergency medicine training 1998, from 98 to 2001, I feel like I could count on one hand how many times I would see a true opiate-related life-threatening overdose. Now I can go one weekend or one week and count that number, same number, five people or so. So they're rolling in a patient in the emergency room at Orlando Health. And the trauma center essentially is where they come through? They're everywhere, not just in the trauma center. You'll see them in community hospitals. This is not just a problem of a certain demographic or anything. This is really pervades, you know, many socioeconomic spectrums. 
Um, and um, although the, the peak does seem to be ages kind of 18 through 30, we do see that at, at all ages. What's your, I mean, you know, we've had very, we've had recovering addicts, addicts, administrators, uh, people involved in the rehabilitation centers. You're the first medical doctor that we've had on the program addressing this particular issue. Everyone seems to have a, you know, various different way, uh, uh, observations how we got to this crisis. You would term it a crisis that we have? Without a doubt, a crisis. Epidemic? Just to put it in perspective, I, I was telling Moira, you know, we had, if you look over the 20 years of the Vietnam War, yeah. something like 58,000 Americans died. Correct. Last year alone, 64,000 Americans died from drug overdose. The large majority of that is opiate-related overdoses. So, mm. yes, epidemic, and, and I want to thank you for having this program because I don't think people realize the scope of this and how dangerous it is. 64,000 a year. That's Exactly. Now, we will get text messages come in every time we have one of these interviews every Wednesday. And it's essentially, well, this is a decision that they made. It's all their fault. It's a moral decision, blah, 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 blah. I don't buy that. I, I just don't. I don't. What's going on with a, with, with a person who is addicted to an opioid? So addiction is really, it's not a moral failing. It is a disease process. And that's how we in the medical community are taught to, to look at this. Uh, there's treatments for addiction, just like there's treatments for any other medical problem. Like with any medical problem, there are psychosocial factors that may predispose somebody or or make it worse or better, but it's still a medical problem for which we need, at least on the medical side, many medical solutions. Now, your question about how we got here, that does the medical community does take some share of the blame in that. Now we I, I can tell you back when I was a young physician in training, you know, we dramatically changed how we prescribed opiates. There's a lot of external factors, I think a lot of uh, a drug company push and and things to to strongly encourage prescribing of opiate prescription opiate medicines. And we went overnight over a very short period of time from, from being very judicious with how we prescribe yeah. opiates to just going, you know, uh, over the top. Right. Mm -hmm. Did doctors get uh, snookered a little bit? I mean, you know, we all see salesmen coming into doctors' offices. Many doctors, they're family physicians. They, you know, somebody comes in with pain. They've, they've suffered an injury in a workplace or maybe a major back problem. They just can't alleviate any kind of pain. Part of the medical community snookered by the salesman who said, hey, this is non-addictive. Uh, this is the greatest thing that came along since uh, sliced bread. And all of a sudden, uh, the prescriptions come out. And probably in the beginning, many of these people justifiably relieved their pain. Absolutely. And included in those doctors that were snookered was myself. I mean, I... Who can argue with trying to reduce pain and suffering? It's always been an adage in medicine. Even if there's a lot of things we can't do well, one of the few things we can do well is relieve pain and suffering. So when this data, I put data in quotes, comes around that says the potential for addiction is extremely, extremely low, I don't think we questioned it the way we probably should have. And that's why today the majority of heroin users, you know, unlike the 1960s epidemic, when you know you had heroin users, almost all of them got their entree to opiates through heroin. Nowadays, 80% got their entree through prescription drugs, so often from physicians or diverted somehow through physicians. And we had pretty lax regulation overlooking this as well. This is essentially people who are living uh, who are living with uh, severe pain. They wanted to alleviate their pain, and doctors were prescribing these new drugs that came on the market. Then when the when the pill mills or when, you know, the federal government, the state government, the local law enforcement began to crack down on 
pill distribution and on the pharmacies, then people had to look elsewhere to, is that where fentanyl, is that where heroin came in, into play? I would say that's partially true. I don't want to blame the the rise of the opiate, uh, the heroin epidemic on the shutting of the pill mills. Rather, it was the rise of the pill mills which um, which fueled the fire, if you will. So I think it created an appetite and hunger. And if you look at the data that supports that, once we started prescribing opiates, yes. the number of users and deaths went up. But in the background, heroin use started to increase at that same time. Why so is that? Fed an appetite. They're related drugs, really. And and maybe I, I, sh- I should make that point. They all come from the same poppy plant, the Percocet, um, heroin, fentanyl. They're all derived from the same drug. And they all have essentially similar effects. But, you know, one might be a little bit more powerful or give you a stronger rush, or maybe be more effective in certain situations, but they all come from the same chemical. I would imagine all the, is it opioid or opiate? Does it make any difference? We, we, they're, opiate suggests it's naturally derived, opioid suggests that it's synthetic. So we, for the purposes of this, we'll just call it opioids, and we'll include them all. Do you think there was more of a turn towards heroin because of, you know, a lot of this is just market-driven. If there's a demand, somebody is going to fill the demand. And if I can get, if I'm addicted to something, I want to alleviate the pain. I'm not trying to get high. I just don't want to go with, through withdrawal, and I'm trying to alleviate the pain. Somebody says, well, here's a pill. Here's your pill, and it's going to cost you $25. And somebody else says, yeah, but I can get you a hit of heroin for $10. I mean, is, is that part of what you saw as well, or am I just way off base with that? Yeah, I think you're in the right vicinity in that there. Yeah, there is some degree of market driving, and probably as a medical community, we maybe lowered that barrier, maybe lowered it too much to rather than prescribing and saying, be careful, these are potentially addictive substances. And I think we ourselves didn't appreciate how addictive they were. Um, this has the potential to lead to other things like addiction or you know use of heroin. And you time it not just with market forces, but the marketing, there was a heavy influx around this time of cheap available heroin that came into communities all across the United States, much cheaper, much easily available. Uh, There was, if you actually read some of the the stories about how drug distribution occurred, very simple paging systems. I mean, they deliver more effectively than like a pizza, a delivery pizza place or Uber (laughs) Eats. They would just come to your house. You didn't have to go to a a back alley and buy this stuff. It was very easy to obtain. And fentanyl is now taking the place of heroin? Yes. So, and, and and if you can explain to the audience, what is fentanyl? So fentanyl is another synthetic opioid, and that's actually a drug that we use in the hospital setting to treat pain, but it's much more powerful than okay. than heroin, and it's even gone a step further. After fentanyl, there have been even additional synthetic drugs that are related to fentanyl. They have names like sufentanyl or carfentanyl or aryl fentanyl. These are all. Uh, what we call derivatives or or They tweaked it somehow. Yeah, and they're even more powerful than the fentanyl itself and therefore more dangerous. Tell me, I think you mentioned a few minutes ago that somewhere along the line you were buying into the, you know, what the the pharmaceutical companies were saying and you privately said, well, this is these pills when they first came out, you know, they're helping to alleviate pain. And then you had, I think you indicated you had a change of thought when it, came t- to their use. When, when did that happen? Walk me through the process of what what happened with you. I mean, you're an expert in this particular field, but you kind of, I don't want to say you went along for the ride for a while, but you came to the conclusion, something's not right here. I think myself, like many physicians, started realizing that people would come in with things that we would 
traditionally consider more minor complaints and seem to be requiring larger and larger amounts of opiates. You know, there are some things, I mean, back pain can be debilitating sure. or an ankle sprain can be really bad, but that often doesn't warrant months of opiates, a month-long prescription. There were some outside pressures too. You know, hospitals are under pressures for patient satisfaction sure. scores. There were a variety of, uh, some of these drug companies were were helping sponsor lawsuits against physicians who inadequately treated pain, right. reporting them to state medical boards and things. So there were a lot of uh, pressures, but I think we started to realize there are a lot more people who need more and more of this, and it's starting to not feel right anymore, and we're feeling more and more more pressured to do this. And then at the same time, the CDC and large organizations showed nationally that the number of people dying is dramatically going up, and we need to get our arms around it. Our guest this afternoon is Dr. Joseph Thundiel. Among other things, he's on the Orange County Heroin Task Force. He treats patients in the emergency departments who suffer from complications of drug use. Let me take a little break. When we come back, I'd like to have you walk through the process of when somebody comes in and you have to treat someone. You're not in long-term care. You're in the business of somebody's having an crisis. overdose. At that particular point in time, they're, having a, they're in physical crisis. So I'd like to walk, have you walk us through that. Some other things as well. It's the Phillips File on Real Radio 104.1. You're listening to the Phillips File. Yeah, it's the Phillips File for this uh, Wednesday, May 2nd. You know, on Wednesdays for the first 30, now 40 minutes, we uh, spent focusing on the opioid, opiate crisis here in Central Florida. And our guest today is Dr. Joseph Thundiel. Among other things, we read his his bio. It's it, I can't read it again. It would be here forever. <laughs> but he is a member of the Orange County Heroin Task Force, and he also treats patients in the emergency departments who suffer from complications of drug use. So you're the guy, they wheel the, they wheel the uh, person who's overdosed, wheel them into the emergency room, then you take over. Tell me what's going on with the patient and what are you doing with the patient? So most of the time, if they've come in with an overdose, the reason they've come in is that they've stopped breathing. I mean, one of the side effects of these opiate medicines is they shut down your respiration center. And so they stop breathing. So the, the most available and easy antidote, which, by the way, now is available over the counter. Well, I would say over the counter, but standing order at certain pharmacies, CVS and Walgreens in particular, you don't need a prescription at those two places, is a medicine called naloxone or Narcan. It's Narcan. an antidote that's been around for 40, 50 years. Anybody who is a user can now, doesn't have to go through a physician. Um, it used to be only physicians and paramedics had this. Now you can actually have it at home. Uh, it's available by nasal spray. It's available by a, like a talking needle device. And this can really, if given soon enough, it can revive somebody who stopped breathing. So I have one in my briefcase. And I, and I guess my concern or the concern of many people would be, here's somebody unconscious or beginning to go, become unconscious. I don't know if they're having a stroke, if they're having a heart, heart attack. I don't know if they got hit by a car. Uh, maybe they're having a drug overdose. And so... Would people be hesitant to the pe some people? I'm not doing that. I'm not. I'm not going to spray anything up their nose. Would it hurt? I mean, let's say they're having a heart attack, and I think it's a drug overdose. And I'm breaking out my Narcan, and I spray it up their nose. What's going to happen? Anything? You had the same question that most people have, which what? How dangerous is it? Right. It's not dangerous. It's remarkably safe. Um, if you give it to somebody who's not having an overdose or who's maybe unconscious for some other reason, it's not going to have any adverse effects. I mean, it's so safe 
that now our law enforcement officers, many of them actually carry naloxone because we know time from being down to time to getting naloxone is critical. So if we can shorten that time, so if, for example, if police are there before paramedics, they often carry it and will administer it. And they have done a tremendous job, and they will tell you they've seen people revive because of those efforts. How immediate is it? It depends if within seconds to a minute or two. Seconds? It, yeah, they especially if we give it right IV, up. boom. And I, I compare it to, like, waking Lazarus from the dead. I mean, we have seen people well, are. who are blue, and they're like, I think they look for all practical purposes dead, and you give it and they pop right up boom, and, and, and are fine. conversational. Um, now, it's not to say it's the cure-all. Like, there are... It, situations where they've been down too long mm. or other things where it's not going to work and that's why people die and the big thing to realize is the large majority of these deaths are not happening in a back alley somewhere they're happening at home so this is a medicine everybody who has an opiate at their house should carry naloxone uh in their house you know just like you know tylenol or something yeah, if not, you know, in a briefcase or in your purse or whatever, you never uh-huh. know when you might right. have to right, right. You know, pull it out. If you come and, upon that, I mean, you're a good Samaritan, boom. Right. And, and so the, so somebody's wheeled into the emergency room. You're you're called immediately. And what happens? I mean, let's say, I don't even know what, and the Narcan doesn't work. I mean, mm-hmm. there are other procedures that you can do, or is it? Yeah, there are other procedures. Now, I will say, I mean, you hit them for with something example, else, you give them a shot of something that we're not aware of. and You know, the way the Narcan works is, you know, you have these receptors in your brain which bind this this heroin mm-hmm. morphine molecule. And the Narcan comes and essentially flicks it off and takes that spot. Um, with some of the stronger fentanyls and stuff, you need more Narcan than you would for regular morphine. So sometimes we have to give additional Narcan. Yeah, okay. Um, sometimes that, if that doesn't cut it, we have to put them on respiratory support or life support until their body can metabolize some of it. Talk to me about the withdrawal process or, or what people are going through with withdrawal. We hear the biggest fear of people who are addicted is, is, is their fear of withdrawal Yeah, because it is so terrible and what they're doing by, by giving themselves another shot or whatever they're doing is, is trying to ward off. The withdrawal. It's Terrible a, feeling. I think most people think, oh, they just they just want to get high. They just want to get high. They want to get high again. And in effect, no, is that's not correct. They're just trying to ward off withdrawal. having the flu 10 times over, 100 times over. Yeah, and let me talk about it in two separate parts. First, sure. let me talk about tolerance. So one of the issues is as you use this drug, you need more of it to achieve the same desired effect. I likened it to... Uh, you know, my son, when he was like four or five years old, he played that that game where you snatch a a stuffed animal with that claw, right. and he pay a dollar, give him a dollar, and thinking he'd never win, and he'd learn his lesson. But sure enough, he won. And now every time he's twelve years old, now we walk by a machine, he's got to play it, and it's that desire to kind of get you know get that euphoric effect. And people have to use more and more, and and that's probably where the market for the stronger drugs like fentanyl, sufentanyl, and so forth has come around is for that. Now here's the dangerous part. The dangerous part is your Tolerance to the euphoria or the high gets grows faster than your body's tolerance to the respiratory depression. Okay, that's why this drug is so dangerous, and you don't know as a person what you know where you are when you hit the level. You don't know until you die or until you stop breathing. mm -hmm. So that's the real danger, and so people go with higher and higher amounts. Now, one of the other things that happens is the the as you use this chemical. So think about it. We our body normally produces some degree of endorphins that help com- control or modulate pain in our body. So when um, you start using this morphine-related molecule, your body doesn't produce it anymore. So now when you stop, 
everything hurts. And that's the way people describe it. Like I think you said the flu a hundred times over, body aches, vomiting, diarrhea. The good news is even though it feels life-threatening, it is not, you don't die from heroin withdrawal the way you can from other types of drug withdrawals. It just feels like you're going to die. Anyone who's been a patient who's had to be on these uh, medications can even tell you um, as you stop, part of you wants to reach into that medical uh, medicine cabinet. It's calling you. I need another dose. And there's a point at which you have to let your body start to create these endorphins again on their own. But it's that withdrawal that's so painful that require that kind of gets people to continue can to continue to use. Kind and of that's where, back in. And that's where the medical treatment, you know, uh, which you probably will have someone on the yeah. treatment side talk at a different time, but that's where the medical... It's like being seasick. You want to die. You think you're going to die. You're not going to die from being seasick, unless you fall overboard, maybe. And, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's not going to happen, but you, but anybody who's ever been seasick, they said, geez, I wish, I'm glad the captain doesn't keep a gun on board. They they say it. And, and like yeah. seasickness, you will recover, yeah. and you'll go through some misery days, and even after people recover, though, people will say that, that they still have these cravings. Mm-hmm. So... You know, and that ongoing treatment is, is helpful. Dr. Joseph Thundiel is our guest. Let me ask you a question. Is it automatically addictive? We used to hear the stories about crack cocaine. I'll never do crack cocaine. Once you do crack cocaine, you're a crack addict. Is that the same with any of these substances? If, for instance, I went out there for whatever reason, I shot myself up with a moderate dose or whatever of heroin or anything else, am I automatically addicted? Is it the high where I'm going to go, geez, man, I've got to do that a second time? Not everybody, and which is what makes it scary. Some people, and this is where addiction gets confusing. We don't know why some people are predisposed to uh, getting addicted and needing it and why others aren't. But recently there was a very, very big medical study with thousands of patients where they looked at people, and this is just the prescription drug side. For people, as much as 5% of people who are on a prescription opiate for three days mm-hmm. will be on it one year later meaning they're going to need it. And as you go to seven days, that number goes up to about 7% or really? so. So it shows you that there's probably a certain subset of people who have a predisposition to addiction to this chemical and others who, who may not. I wouldn't, I wouldn't roll the dice, though. You could have an addictive personality to something, but that doesn't make you more... That wouldn't, that wouldn't increase the odds for you to be an addict. I mean, the, it, one is psychological and one is just it, it's, it's essentially biochemical. It's not entirely clear. I mean, there is, there are different factors that play into addiction. There is a psychological component. There are right. always people who tend to do things to the nth degree. But there is also a physical, biological component, too, where some people are predisposed, just like with alcoholism and other things. Some people are predisposed to it. And and we we don't know yet. We can't predict yet who those people are going to be. You're part of the Orange County Heroin Task Force. You're uh, an emergency room physician. Who uh, who treats people who come in with overdoses? Is there something along the line that you hear about that the community's not aware? It seems that every time we try to get a handle on one of these substances, something else comes along to take its place. Is there? Are you hearing any noise about? You know, we are the the newest noise are in the so the good news is we've seen deaths from prescription drugs start to drop. We've seen deaths from heroin start to drop, in and, our, and that's why because of awareness. I think some of it is awareness, but some of it may be, and some of it are the efforts by the task force, yeah. by law enforcement, by treatment providers, but some of it also may be, um, some of the people are moving to some of the, the stronger drugs. And so, whereas those deaths are decreasing, the deaths from fentanyl and fentanyl analogs is going up. So that's, 
one of the areas that we really need to continue to create awareness, um, get uh, get people to obviously to stop using, prevent um, non-users from even starting because it can be a very slippery slope. I read a story recently, and this has worked in some communities, hasn't worked in other communities, and that's a clean needle exchange. Uh, you have a, 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 an observation one way or the other? Or is there... We're talking about a different thing, because clean needle exchange is more about trying to prevent some of the secondary complications of IV drug use. So that is really trying to, you know, almost half of the country Transmission of AIDS yes, or Hep-C HIV and, and things like that. Uh, correct. So okay. that it's a different issue. I mean, there are other counties that have tried safe uh, injection zones where people can go. But, you know, a lot of the deaths, too, are not even by people who think they're using fentanyl. We've had a few reported deaths where people took a pill that they thought was a Xanax or thought was a Percocet and ended up having fentanyl. We have cases of people who purchased uh, cocaine and it was laced with fentanyl, and those people died that way. So there are other ways people are dying that has nothing to do with what their intended use of the product So is. here's a stupid question. For, uh, the question, so if if you're looking for a particular substance, I, I need a, I need a heroin fix. Uh, why wouldn't there? Could anybody come up with a with a test package? They don't know what they're buying. Is it heroin or is it fentanyl or is it some kind of elephant tranquilizer out there where they could test it themselves before they before they use it? Does that make it, or is that just too complicated? Where you need a microbiologist or somebody <laughs> to come in, a, a, a chemist of some sort. You could do it. I'm I'm sure, but. I, it's outside of my area of expertise. <laughs> I'm sure somebody could develop something like that. I don't, and who there might even be something that I'm not aware of. But as of now, I don't know that something like that exists yeah. or that's reliable and accurate. So where do you where do you see this going from from here now? Well, I I see hope. I mean, the fact that our county convened a task force before most other counties. We've seen our deaths. Uh, drop a little fat our mortality is not as high as some of the other countries are the responses in increasing though or are they getting more calls and saving lives so you know you have these crossing of lines you have maybe an increase in responses but a decrease in deaths because paramedics and doctors physicians like you are are are, are, are keeping people, people alive yeah. yeah i mean that could be part of it but some of those increased responses might also just be awareness i think people know this person can die if they don't get help and we also are just more aware of it. So it's possible. But, you know, it took us almost 20 years to get to where we are now. I don't think it's going to disappear overnight. But I see communities getting together, talking about it. Yeah. I see stigma dropping off, which helps a lot. Right. I really encourage anyone who has an issue with it, if they talk to their health provider, discuss your addiction, because this is how we can work towards getting people clean. It is not always an easy road. But it is doable. I have worked alongside people in different areas that I didn't know were addicts and suffered through addiction and have gotten clean and are now functional people. They are parents. They are um, they they work. They provide their community yeah, professionals, yeah. and they it's it's doable. I mean, you think about the the ability to take care of your family and to 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 uh, continue to have a job and work with the community. All those are taken away from you if you don't go and get, potentially taken away from you if you don't go get help. Dr. Joseph Thundeal is our guest. A couple of minutes. You have children. How many children do you have? Two. How old? 12 and 11. You talk to them about this? Not yet. <laughs> do you, I mean, I know in your mind you probably, you, you, you know you're going to have to talk to them about, about all this sooner or later. Absolutely. Do you have this, a plan of attack yes, or uh, is it? 
absolutely. This is something, you know, we talk about drugs in general. They're not quite ready for the injectable uh, drug talk, but it is, it will come up and it's going to, you know, come up very quickly. They're, you know, basically in that middle school age. So I encourage parents to talk about this. And um, it's one of the areas Orange County Task Force has worked on is, is getting into the school systems and providing education because the use rates right now in that teenage group are not very high and we hope it stays that way. In fact, mm -hmm. we really hope mm -hmm. it never gets high. A lot of times it's that group that goes on, graduates high school, that then starts to use at some point in their near future. We don't want them to stop to start using and there's this concept in drug use of generational forgetting where one generation learned it was dangerous they don't use it but the generation after them uh, starts using it and right. we don't want that to happen either we don't want this to be a problem that you know maybe it gets better and then gets worse again in 10 or 15 years we've got to attack it from all fronts which the task force has been doing law enforcement medical treatment um uh, education and legal so it's i'm very pleased to see this happening and i think we're going to continue to see improvements but it does take a lot of communication. It does take a lot of people in the community becoming involved. Takes a lot of stepping effort forward, by a yeah. lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Uh, by the way, we always get the text. What do we do? What you know? They'll say, "I've got somebody who's in crisis or whatever," and we always, at least from what we gathered, call two one one. If you call two one one, they'll direct you. They'll they'll take the they'll call find your and they'll program. try they'll, yep. to direct you to the proper uh, tr the proper facility or. Or I believe you can text two one one as well. Whatever you need to do to get help, Doctor uh, Joseph Thundio. Thanks for being a guest. You're absolutely terrific. Thank you for doing this we, show. Yes. We like you to come back again as well. All right, there we go. Let's take a little break. It's the Phillips File on Real Radio one hundred four point one.